0: Welcome everybody to another episode of DWP Digital's podcast. My name is Stuart and today we're discussing our use of ephemeral environments to help our teams develop and test their solutions in a safe, self-contained ecosystem. So let's jump in. Stuart, Carl and Phil, would you like to introduce yourselves?
1: Okay, yes. Um, so my name Stu Kens, I prefer that rather than Stuart. Um, I'm currently the Deputy Director, Head of Engineering within Health and Disability um, but I've been within the civil service for about five years now, um, run, run across a, a few different directorates. I was uh, the head of high cloud services for a short period of time, and before that, the tech lead within in retirement. Uh, previously to that, uh, it was all very much private sector and um, building uh, online learning platforms for students across the world and sort of really fancied a change. and Kind of looking to what the public sector are doing particularly how we are looking to transform our services and putting citizen needs at the, the heart of everything we do um, and that's very much where we are going now within the health world because um, part of my responsibility is about developing and delivering the technology strategy for um, major government projects such as the health transformation program um, which currently is delivering 2.2 million assessments a year Um, But we also have a number of other services such as Access to Work and new style ASA, which although they are entirely separate benefit lines, actually from our point of view in this uh, conversation today, they actually have to co-locate in the same technology ecosystem, um, which therefore creates the challenges, which means we have to have isolation and separation. Um, Fundamentally, all accountabilities within this space from a technology and security point of view and the related practices fall under me, um, and we are sort of Ever growing stronger so that's that's me in a nutshell
2: hi so my name is phil hall i'm a lead devops engineer in the health directorate um i've been working with um, dwp for around about four years now um originally via a private consultancy before um joining and working directly with them um, I've kind of I've been within health for a couple of years, but worked across the department and a few different guises prior to then. Um, actually, prior to joining DWP, I've worked in a few different sectors as well, so uh, local government. I spent quite a bit of time in higher education, but also um, working across private sector in IT consultancy and kind of fintech roles. Most recently, um, my focus has really been around cloud platforms and kind of adding automation into software engineering work streams. But I do come from quite a heavy kind of infrastructure led background, so adding a, a very operational and kind of live running element into the role too.
3: Hi there, uh, I'm Carl Hoggins. Uh, I'm a, a lead software engineer uh, sitting in health and uh, health directorate within DWP. I've been with DWP um, for probably around five years now. Uh, Probably the last couple working in health and then uh, in a a range of PDUs before before that. Um, Before uh, I joined DWP, I I had a stint working in an airline and and worked in the IT there, what was delivering uh, kind of mobility solutions for for pilots who worked a lot on kind of iPad apps and making paperless cockpits, which was quite interesting. Going back even further, yeah, my, my background is probably more hardware focused, so uh, coming from kind of microprocessor design and microelectronics and then into to kind of hardware, software interfacing and then uh, took, the, took the path of, of software engineering from there. And and yeah, more more, more recently, uh, being a lead software engineer, um, it is trying to, um, you know, promote Good engineering practices and standards across health and, and, and wider DDP and, and try and break down some of the barriers that we have between our, our different engineering families as well. So let's talk a little bit
0: about your team and the service you support. Uh,
1: so the health and disability team um, is basically an entire PDU within the, the wider DDP con- context um, and we deliver health-related benefits and the sort of attached digital services as part of that. Um, the team is now scaled to 25 Agile multi teams. Um, that's circa about 300 people, and they work across um, citizen facing services, ones for our healthcare practitioners, and when we talk about things like the health assessment service, for example, as well as internal DDP agents. And um, Regardless of who, who the end user is, though, we need to make sure that we are fitting our, um, the user needs, thinking about the, the citizen and the heart of everything we do. The purpose of this is to transform our complex internal legacy estate um, into a modern microservice cloud native architecture which does put all of those flexibilities at the heart of what we want and making sure we, we are thinking about how we can achieve the best services for our citizens ultimately at the end of the day but also having a cost thought as well because ultimately we don't want to waste taxpayers' money. Um, the team remits are split between those focused on end products, so they'll be the services which people will be interacting with directly, um, but also we've got a, a core part of what we call the enabling teams. Um, the remit of these are to put in the foundations in place to allow the product teams to succeed ultimately. Um, part of this is the creation and standardisation around ephemeral environments, which is what we're going to be talking about today, um, and the standardisation around our deployment processes. The idea here is that the product teams don't need to keep reinventing the wheel around this um, and removes the cognitive load of them sort of trying to face up the challenges of how to get base functionality from a development laptop all the way through into production. We sort of take that on in a more holistic view within health and disability.
2: The the team that I sit on, kind of touching on what Sue said, is one of the enabling teams. So, kind of building out our reusable platforms, our shared code bases, the things that we can actually spread across multiple product teams. Um, but also, the kind of the nature of my role means I do kind of get involved with a lot of the other feature led teams. So, we're trying to set standards in terms of engineering disciplines, in terms of the the DevOps culture, and the way we kind of work across the teams as well.
3: I in one of the, the enabling teams in health so so we do a lot of uh, the enabling um setting standards patterns um and promoting reuse across across health um so we work we work within the team, but with a lot of teams as well um and and as as you mentioned, trying to reduce that cognitive load uh, and and providing a lot of of reuses so teams can can accelerate uh, through to getting uh, their their products and changes into life. Uh, I think beyond that as well, we, we do look to try and influence as far as possible. So so we, you know, f- f- based on our learnings, we do uh, uh, publish patterns uh, for wider reuse across DWP uh, and try and share uh, our code for, for, for reuse as well to, to allow that benefit to, to stretch beyond the, the realms of health.
0: So what are ephemeral environments and how are people using them across the industry?
2: So an in ephemeral environment is is quite often referred to by a number of different names. So you might hear them kind of called short-lived environments, dynamic, temporary on demand, but essentially they're they're all the same thing. And it at the most basic level, an ephemeral environment is is simply an environment that isn't long lived and instead it only exists for a defined period of time. And in terms of what, what we mean by an environment, it tends to be a, a collection of infrastructure or services to enable someone whether it be a development team or otherwise to deploy their components their applications into um ephemeral environments started to appear generally around the kind of first wave of virtualization and and organizations kind of dabbled with them um specifically when when they had like on-prem services um but there there was definite limitations in kind of what could be delivered on premise so it's really the the kind of emergence of ephemeral environments came when cloud kind of came to fruition um and this truly enabled um us to to harness the elasticity of cloud to deliver environments kind of at a rapid pace um on demand scale to whatever needs um the the development teams need
1: the, the key thing around for me is that it's the concept of them being domain context bound so you're able to it stretches from where we, we currently have the idea around of um, Docker containers, for example, as being something you can just throw away. This is extending that to a collection of components which live together for a specific purpose, um, but it doesn't remove the fact that you can then throw them away and destroy them. They, they will come up, be used for um, for whatever purpose they're needed, and then they're gotten rid of. Um, that is fundamentally enabled by the fact that cloud is entirely API driven. So you can create whole ecosystems on the fly, just through infrastructure code, for example, and then deploy your units, use it in the way you need to use it, and then load away.
3: So, so I see, general uh, environments as, a, as an extension uh, to to kind of commodity hardware. We've talked about the advancements of cloud and cloud, you know, hardware being uh, API driven, uh, commodity hardware. Uh, throw away hardware. And this is another layer, another um, kind of layer on top of that, where you get your groupings of, of your commodity hardware into an environment, again, uh, API driven, uh, requiring automation. Uh, but essentially, it's, it's, it's that next tier of, of groupings of commodity hardware into a commodity environment that you can't throw away when you, you no longer require it. So
0: how long have we been using these environments? And what's our setup?
3: Okay, so it's, it's probably been a, a couple of years since we since we started using ephemeral environments in anger. Um, and in terms of setup, um, that, that's quite a difficult one to to answer. Um, so ephemeral environments, um, you know, as as we mentioned before, are are throwaway environments, um, and and they you need some kind of wider foundations to to get the best use of them. So you need some automation and some infrastructure as code to. That, that define your environments uh, and allow you to stand them up in a repeatable way. Um, so what that essentially means is we, we can vary our setup. So we we invest in our foundations and get that foundational platform, so we can we can uh, create ephemeral environments as and when needed. And then it's 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 logic config to define uh, what size uh, we want, what what's what scale, what what hardware, software, um, so we can vary that as as and when required to to meet the the needs. So we can have, um, if we're doing uh, feature development, you know, and and we're working with teams on uh, a team of developers or multiple teams, uh, they can all have quite small scale environments, uh, don't need it to cost a lot, but they can do whatever proving they need. Whereas we might uh, decide uh, to spin up a, a full size kind of prod like uh, environment to do some performance testing. or might choose to do that, you know, on, on a schedule. We might do it every night. Uh, so it's we've got that. Um, yeah the configurability to, to do exactly what we need and, and to meet meet the needs
1: so just to build on uh, what Carl was saying so it it we have been investigating it for a little while it formed became part of um, health and disability sort of technology strategy the middle of last year um, and it is as Carl was mentioning because of that total flexibility that it enables us um, we, we can go from it anything from um, tiny and developers sort or of just proving out their feature fall through to complete um, replication of what a live state looks like to do formal load testing, all of which is encapsulated within the exact same processes. So from the beginning of what we're trying to do within development, it actually effectively looks exactly the same as how it operates within production. And it's that sort of building up. So that's kind of where when we say it's difficult to answer the exact question about What the size and scale currently is, is because we can range it to whatever our use case is for a given moment.
0: What advantages do ephemeral environments have over the longer life environments and why have we chosen to use them specifically?
2: so i I think the initial advantage is the removal of constraints so just to put a bit of kind of setting the scene on this one i'm sure as engineers we've all been in a situation where the development life cycle is often stalled due to maybe the qa environment being used to test something um that gives you an inability to kind of develop and deploy and test your features because someone else is using it for their purpose or there could be scenarios where maybe there's specific versions of the application deployed on some fixed infrastructure um, to support maybe some third-party testing or something that's going on and and again that prevents you from being able to kind of test and develop and prove the things that you need to do so really with it within ephemeral environments what we're trying to do is remove that constraint um, we don't want fixed infrastructure. We don't want a fixed number of environments. We want to kind of build and scale these to the needs of the product and the needs of the development team. So, in in smaller teams, yeah, they they, they might only have one or two kind of spun up at any one point in time. Whereas, if we're working on maybe multiple feature teams working together on the same application, they may have dozens of environments being being built and and equally the same applies all the way through the development life cycle so it's not just development it's testing as well Let, let's say we need a full-size production scaled environment to do some performance tests on um but let's say another team also comes along and says well i, I want to run something on that performance test environment well we're, we're not constrained by having a performance test environment basically we treat that as as a type of environment, and we'll just provision another one. So it enables us to kind of run parallel development um, life cycles, be able to run parallel tests, and, and effectively what we're trying to do is just increase Teams velocity.
1: And also, because of the sort of short-lived nature of some of these things, it creates these huge possibilities around doing things like user research. So rather than having prototypes being done in isolation of a uh, real live running environment, we are now able to actually, you know, alter a user journey, put it out in a non-production environment, and allow for user research to put it get done against that. And um, the reason for that is the fact that these things will only exist for a handful of hours or a day, say, whilst th- those research sessions are going on, then they are obliterated. So, if, unlike the unlikely event that there was some form of compromise from a security point of view, the blast radius is actually greatly minimised because these things don't live for a long period of time. They're just there for the one purpose, um, which gives us that extra flexibility in making sure that, you know, we 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 use the, the technologies for what we wanted to, but also leverage the learnings and the quick and move everything to the left, because we want to make sure that we're getting that sort of quick ecosystem changes, building in right from, again, rather than having everything go up to production before we can do some of these user research sessions or accessibility testing points of view?
3: So I, I was just going to mention um, that ephemeral environments kind of benefits in terms of config drift. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure we've all got experience of of um, where we deployed one environment um, and everything seems to be OK. So maybe we deploying to dev and everything seems fine. And then when you start promoting through the environments t- towards prod, so maybe we we'll are get into staging or something like that and things start breaking and blowing up. We don't know why, and it's because something's been iterated in the dev environment um, uh, that, that hasn't been replicated or consolidated in code. And that, that used to happen quite a lot um, the, the, uh, by using ephemeral environments and, and kind of the codified nature of them with automation. So, so all environments are essentially the same. It kind of removes that, that possibility to have config drift. Uh, so, so there's a real benefit there over long lived environments. And I was also just going to mention the, the kind of the, the cost versus risk risk factor as well so again I'm, I'm sure many have been in the situation where you know it might have been really nice to do some volume tests but but actually that means we're going to have to spin up um, a, a performance test environment that needs to be full scale or it's going to take a while to do that uh, with, with infrastructure guys needing to, to to be on hand to do to help and um, so we might not do it we might carry some risk forward and, and hope Things go well. or might try and infer some some metrics out of scaled environments. Again, we don't need to, to worry about um, you know the the, the time that's going to need to, to build this extra environment. It's all automated and codified. Uh, we don't need to worry about kind of interpolating results. either that we can have a uh, full scale environments or, or environments of any config um, as and when we need them. And we only pay for their uptime, and then we destroy them once they're gone. So it's benefits in that regard. Carl, what's prod? Uh, sorry, so. so Prod is a uh, production so so this is the, the live running services that that will be accessed by by our end users or citizens or our internal users.
1: The reason why we are so focused on getting into prod or production um, is because that's the point that you realize the value of your effort. It doesn't matter how brilliant the the, the code is, the user experience or the mechanisms that create an environment are, if it's not released into production, it's not being used by citizens, agents, end users, you're not actually realising the value of all that effort. And that is why that is really a a key focus for all of the teams and why we put in the foundational work to make this happen.
0: So which of our services are using ephemeral environments? What types of things are we testing and what impact have you seen from a user service or customer perspective?
1: About 70% of the services are now currently utilising them within health and disability so we've got new style ESA and um, the health assessment service tell spot terminal illness and fitnote um, are now all fully on board with this and um, all new work um, will be using this approach by default um, and we currently have migration plans in place and being acted for access to work and PIP apply um, and they will ultimately bring them all into alignment over the course of the next sort of six months, I imagine. In terms of benefit, um, we've been able to move to regular re- release cadences. So most teams are now releasing weekly. And um, so as soon as we sort of get user research um, information that lets us you know, improve a service, we can get that through development, we can put it through the pipelines, we've got all, obviously all the automation through the um, the testing cycles and people can um, release uh, as needed because of that standardization through both the creation of the environment and the deployment of it. We're able to actually, if we need to release on the same day basis as well, which is quite a shift from um, where the department used to approach things with sort of long lead in times, where it's allowing us to move everything to the left, get our assurance because we're designing for production right from the beginning all the way through to the end.
2: I think, um, as Stu touched on, one of the key benefits comes out from the the actual, the increase in cadence that we can deliver to citizens. But I think if we take this all the way back to the left as well and and look at some of the benefits that we get as engineers ourselves, um, I think we've often been in traditionally in scenarios where a a developer might kind of build their features and do their updates and things, and it works in their local development environment. But often when they then promote that and try and run it on a real infrastructure and run some tests against it, or or even kind of at the latter stages where it's making its way to production, um, th- there's often been instances where failures have occurred because the environments have differed. Um, but I think that one of the key benefits of kind of implementing this pattern is because we've got a single code base, a single code base stand-up infrastructure that's not only used for development and testing, but it's the same code that actually provisions the production environment. Um, if a developer comes along and wants to actually do something, we can effectively build them a production environment. So if they can develop a feature and get it all functional and tested and approved in in a non-production in a test environment, we, we stand a really good chance that by the time that comes to being deployed in production, it's just going to work because effectively, it's all deploying on the same infrastructure.
3: Ephemeral environments kind of form part of uh, a, a wider kind of set of foundations um, and automation um, that that, that, allow, that allow our regular release cadence, plus also kind of benefit our our engineers as they're, as they're working through their features as well. Um, so it, there is there is some work in in foundations. So 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 things do need to be codified. We try and cut manual process out as far as possible. We do think things as code so so they are repeatable and they can be executed um, as required. but because because we've got that automation in place uh, when we build these environments as well we can we can slot things into that automation. so um, yeah yeah we can run tests we've talked about tests we can run them after an environment's built but we can also do other things so we do we can do various security checks um, security scans we can smoke test our environments to make sure that everything looks looks good and healthy. Um, so, so that's all all, all great, and, and that's a pattern that, that our engineers can can adopt and and reuse, so they don't have to reinvent that all, every time. Um, but they, they are in control as well, so we try and empower our teams. So so while they've got a starting point and they've got that that that, that pattern and, and code for reuse, they're in control of their own kind of services. And, and while we set standards, they can uh, adapt their their automation and their their, their codified infrastructure uh, to, to meet their specific needs as well
2: we've also seen that the use of ephemeral environments extend far beyond just development and testing as well Um, and what we've seen is that this isn't really the exclusive domain of engineers and techies um we've got good examples of kind of content designers and business analysts um spinning up their own environments um they might be using these to kind of run demos maybe undertake training sessions but A lot of this has actually been enabled because we've automated the process of spinning up an environment. So where traditionally, if you wanted an environment, you'd maybe have to speak to an infrastructure guy or a DevOps guy or something to to kind of book their time and get them to actually do something for you. Um, Because we've got this single code base and this automated tool train to enable us to effectively press a button, so it's self-service. Um, that someone can come along and as long as they've got permission to do it, they they can press a button and self-serve themselves an environment, use it for whatever they need to do it, as I say, to run demo or training session or so on, and then at the end of the day, that thing's automatically destroyed. Um, So really, by removing that human dependency, we've we've not only sped up delivery, um, but we've actually seen some other benefits in terms of other users who traditionally wouldn't be accessing these sort of environments.
0: DWP looks after a wide variety of services and products. How have we managed to cater for all of the different setups, scales and nuances?
2: Yeah, so ephemeral environments aren't just for modern greenfield development. Um, Prior to working within health, um, we did actually, uh, a small number of our engineers were working on replatforming one of DWP's other kind of legacy monolithic applications um, and it was here that we kind of cut our teeth on developing and proving the initial ephemeral patterns that subsequently we've adopted inside of Health. Um, that application was, as I say, kind of a large application. It was written using technology that wasn't necessarily cloud native, um, but we were still a- able to implement ephemeral patterns and using kind of automated test pipelines and modern tooling. even though the actual application technology underneath that, that powered it might have been considered legacy. Um of course it's it's kind of not without its challenges in doing this and there is a degree of investment and in time that's needed to develop the the infrastructure as code, develop the pipelines and everything else to support it. Um and certainly when we're talking about um, older applications especially those when maybe there's licensed software in the mix it it becomes a little bit more difficult Um, especially if we take for example maybe you've got a licensed database component and you you can't necessarily license this on an hourly basis so the idea of um, potentially spinning up dozens of ephemeral environments and then someone being landed with a bill and go, well actually we need to buy dozens of, of licenses to to fund these. It doesn't necessarily kind of have that synergy. Um, but there are there are some creative solutions that you can employ in terms of maybe in in kind of more environments to the left of, of the lifecycle that you might be putting mocks in there, or you might be having feature toggles that turn off some of these more expensive license components. And a lot of this, again, can be automated, so a developer might be working in a development environment that that they kind of build and cut through, through their pipeline. Um, and then once they've proven their feature in their environment, once it gets promoted through the tool chain to an environment, a test environment to the right, um, that's when some of these license components may be enabled and again that can be fully automated.
0: How secure are these environments? What measures do we have in place to make sure the test environment stays as a test?
1: So by the very nature of them being short-lived purpose specific, um, they are very secure. Um, even if compromise does occur, we can obliterate and redeploy the whole estate that is has been compromised. By having that, the blast radius of what can be taken down is greatly reduced. Um, add to that the fact that you know, we, we always do things like blue-green deployments within production, so that um, as things need to sort of replicate, they, there's no impact to And citizens in terms of what they see, you know, we we can, as standard if we wish, um, cycle the whole ecosystem on a nightly, technically hourly basis if if needed be. Um, Through this, this has all been through, obviously, our internal security um, processes um, to make sure that we are conforming to all relevant standards. Uh, We've obviously been pushing the standards out as well to sort of make sure we uh, adopt a Um, Strength and depth approach across the state, so making sure that we have a number of commensurate um, controls within um, not just running environments, but um, our data access layers, so that by layering up different controls, we actually simplify the state and make it more supportable, but also strengthen the security posture um, because we are constantly under attack due to the fact that we are a government organisation and we hold a large amount of citizen personal information which we need to take very seriously at every stage, um, regardless of where we are in the sort of system lifecycle.
2: Yeah, so ephemeral environments aren't just of the domain of kind of development and test as well. We do deploy ephemerals into production. So as has been kind of briefly mentioned, we use the blue-green pattern in production. So whilst production is longer lived in in a sense of it's available 24-7 and our citizen services are available 24-7, the underlying environments that we deploy into Um, could be changing all the time. They could change on a daily basis or as and when we do deployments. And the idea of when we promote um, from our non-production environments into our production environments. We're not necessarily promoting into a live, already built production environment. Quite often what we're doing is we're taking our infrastructure as code code base and building a brand new production environment. So it's all fresh, it's nice and clean, and we know what the steady state is. And then once we're happy that that deployment has been successful, then we'll automatically flip over and our live traffic will, will come into that new production environment but what that does then mean is the the old one that had previously been running um that gets terminated and it, if there was any sort of kind of security issue or compromise on it the the termination of that environment kind of cuts out that that angle of attack
3: yeah so i was just going to talk a little bit about um how environments are, are isolated um so so yes we can have a environments we can have as many as we need um and phil have mentioned that um you know they, they can be at different points in the in the delivery lifecycle so we still use the federal environments in in prod uh but we blue green them they're just slightly longer lived um and previously i talked about how, how easy it is to create environments uh click a button or or create a branch if you want to make a change we have got some some controls around um our, our release process and, and making those those changes into into our, our prod account um so we have got separation of duties. So so while it's it's really easy to get started and start developing, uh, once all of all of your changes are proven, uh, it does. We have got a, a release process in place with with kind of segregation of duties that makes sure that we, we go into into production in a in a controlled manner and we, we create the new ephemeral environment and do the blue green switch over in, in a really controlled and prescribed manner to to reduce any risk. We, we invest in foundations of, um, of our, our designs for ephemeral environments. Uh, we do do a lot of work up front, and, and we we design for prod. So, so yeah, we we might be spinning up kind of dev type environments for for very initial feature dev- uh, development. But all of our, our design thinking is, is for prod. This thing's going to end up in prod at some point, point um, and all of our environments are the same. So let's not. Uh, Let's not cut features out in, in in the early stages and and leave ourselves open to 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 risk or um, you know significant change later on. Let let's think about all the things we need to consider and, and bring them forward. What that means is y- you do spend time on foundations, but that's time well spent because then you can accelerate through the different um, stages of, of of deployment.
0: How quickly are the teams adopting ephemeral environments, and how have they found them in practice?
2: within health we we started small um but we always knew that it was something that we'd like to actually roll across the entire directorate and get all of our applications on board with it so our well, kind of initial proving and kind of build out of the foundations was done on a, a single application this this was really to make sure that um we invested enough time in those foundations and made sure that the patterns and the implementation code and everything else that underpins it um was reusable across all of our applications in health. So from having maybe only two or three projects at the start of the year, um, we're now in a situation where, on a daily basis, we've got dozens of environments being spun up um, by by teams within health throughout the day, um, and we've got projects kind of in the pipeline who are ready to adopt this approach as well. And it, it's very much been a bit of a kind of self-service effort for the teams as well. Um, as we touched on, we we work as part of an enabling team, so we we built the patterns and we built the standards and the, the code fragments and the like that underpin this, but. That very much the intent was to empower teams to actually adopt this themselves. So it's not uh, um, an effort that requires engineering kind of input centrally. It's very much a case of he- here is the pattern and here is the implementation architecture. Now you you as a team can self-serve and implement this yourself.
3: When we did start off quite small within health, uh, we realised that this, that it was going to go further or we'd like it to go further. So we did invest in and, you know, we made sure that we invested in documentation and templates and quick starts and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that um, there wasn't the, you know, single point of failure. Uh, you needed to go and talk to a, a group of people. Um, this is all documented um, and, and it, it's kind of good to go with, with references um, for, for teams to pick up um, when, when they start this work.
0: What challenges have we faced with the rollout of these environments? What would you do differently or what would you look to improve in the future?
2: So I think one of the the key challenges that we faced and and still continue to face is quite often when um, teams need to interface with third parties. And this tends to be third parties who don't necessarily follow the same patterns around ephemeral environments and may operate kind of more fixed infrastructure. So to kind of put some context around this, if, if we are developing features that interfaces with these third parties, quite often we need to run tests between our environments and their environments. But if they run on fixed infrastructure, quite often we might have to book time to actually give us a slot on their environment and make their engineers aware that they need to deploy certain versions of their components. And, and ultimately, this kind of lacks the flexibility that we might otherwise have from a self-contained point of view. So whilst maintaining an ephemeral environments within health, within our own domain and within different applications and products within the health domain, we certainly are afforded this flexibility. But when, when we start interfacing with um, maybe other teams within the department or externally who don't necessarily implement the same sort of patterns, um, th- this can kind of cause us some sort of issues.
1: So, one of the things I would do differently um, if I was to have my time again would be to invest a bit more upfront in really bottoming out the value statement um, of doing this foundational work. A lot of we did hit some resistance from teams who wanted to sort of continue on the, the, the journey they were currently on. And it took a while for us to be able to show and demonstrate actually you know all the key benefits and we did that largely through by as phil mentioned earlier starting small with an exemplar project and were therefore able to demonstrate it i think if i would have my time again i would have probably sort of tried to come up with more materials and narrative to sell that story up front without actually having to have done the physical um, execution of that work and um, I would recommend for people listening to the podcast, though, if they're interested in learning about any of these things, to come and speak to the teams, getting a real life viewpoint of how they find um, operating this new way of working, because it is a, quite a big mindset shift. You know, you, you really are going to the left on lots of things, um, and that does lead to a, a change in your ways of working, your cultures, your practices, as well as sort of the base technology that makes it all happen.
0: So what advice would you give to others who are considering the implementation of a thermal environment?
2: I think a lot of it touches on what we've spoken about previously in terms of kind of articulating the value and identifying the benefits, because as we say, this is this is quite an engineering undertaking, but it isn't just a tick box exercise. Um, And the change of culture that that comes with actually implementing this can can reap significant rewards but it does need buy-in, as, as every cultural change in an organisation does. It can't just be done in a silo. It does need to be, kind of, everyone needs to be involved in that change.
3: It's just about embracing that, that we do need to push a lot of things left. Uh, we need to think about things up front, invest in the foundations, and, and yes, there's, there's definitely work there. Um, we've talked a lot about automation, that's a key part you know there's always requests so we haven't got time to, to test that we'll just do a manual test in this situation anything of that creeps in um, if that nature creeps in then then you've kind of broken your flow you've broken that end-to-end journey of automation um and until that that's repaid in terms of that that debt um, you've broken your process so yeah I guess my advice would just just to be um yeah as, as Stu said just to be razor sharp on 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 automation and, and don't let any any manual process sneak back in to your flow.
1: Start by talking uh, to us, the team, um, looking at our example projects so as well as all the documentation we've got, which there's a wealth of. We've got exemplar actual real world environment product, um, which then can be used and leveraged for your own purposes to sort of learn from. Um, definitely you need to have a mindset of not wanting to have manual processes in any part of this. Um, If you start introducing manual processes, you basically break all the benefits of going down that road. So you have to be really lightning focused on automation through every aspect and finding ways to do that. And sometimes that's more natural and easier than others, um, but leverage the wider DUP engineering community as well as obviously those within health to help you on your journey.
0: So just before we end, how would you like to see ephemeral environments being used in the future?
1: So I
2: think really I'd like to see ephemeral environments become the standard. Um, don't get me wrong, we're not the only ones within DWP that I implement an ephemeral environment, but it still very much feels like we're the exception rather than the norm. Um, and with that comes some of the challenges that we've already spoken about in terms of interfacing with other teams and kind of doing those kind of more complex integrations. And if we could break down some of some of that manual effort that teams are doing at the moment and automate it and have the flexibility to spin up environments on demand and kind of connect to them and run tests between them, it really does take us one step closer to to automating the entire t- tool chain all the way from a developer checking in code to that actually being deployed in production in a kind of repeatable, assured, but hands-off way.
3: I would like to to see it become the, the default position this is this is what what we, we we know and use and and everyone's aware of it um you know, we mentioned mindset earlier so th- it'd be great to see that mindset shift and, and everybody get on the same page so we don't have to kind of repeat the conversations when we get new joiners or are we talking to to, to other teams uh within indeed p that we need to, to interface with around you know or can we de- deploy this change to QA? That that's not a thing anymore uh, You're on control. You you can you can deploy it to whatever environment you want. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, having everyone on that same page and pulling the same direction, sing from the same hymn sheet would be would be an excellent place to be.
1: For me, having that sort of as a base standard across the department gives us that real flexibility. To, as engineers want, need to move between teams, if they're all used to the way of working, the practices, the standards, the processes. Um, that really empowers um, us as engineers to you know go across work in different environments solve problems and not have to worry about learning what how does the whole ecosystem operate in this part of the company
0: so that ends our podcast for today hit the subscribe button if you want to make sure you don't miss our next episode and i'd like to thank Stu, carl and phil for taking part today. It's been really interesting to hear about our ephemeral environments and how they work. So thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time on the DWP Digital Podcast.